Welcome to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network, a show that streams health, happiness, and hope to the kidney community. You can download all Kidney Talk shows from iTunes and find a variety of resources to help you navigate this illness at rsnhope.org. Please welcome your host, Lori Hartwell, who has lived with kidney disease since the age of two. Well, welcome to Kidney Talk. Today is one of the most difficult interviews I think I've ever conducted because it's it really talks about our mortality. And, you know, we all have an expiration date. And when you hear the word hospice, it, it just makes that all real. And today we're going to be talking to Celeste Castioli. She's a friend of mine. She's a peer. She's a mentor. And she's an advocate in the kidney community. And she has decided to choose hospice because some of her health issues have become quite significant. So welcome to the show, Celeste. Oh, thank you so much, Lori, for having me here. Well, it's I think you have so much courage to share your story and your decision. And I think you have the potential to help a lot of us because we all are going to deal with this decision in one way or another at some point in our life. And um, tell us a little bit, uh, just so people get a frame of reference, a little bit of your background with health. So, um, you know, I'm 51 years old now, and um, as many of us, we started our journey at different phases of our lives um, with end-stage renal disease or kidney disease. And I actually was diagnosed with a uniformly fatal autoimmune disease at the age of 17. And that's when I started my journey um, with kidney failure. The disease itself... I went to the NIH. Well, I didn't actually go there. They had a phase three clinical trial going on with the drugs, and I couldn't get into the study, but I was able to use the protocol of the medication. So I used the protocol of the medication, and it did put my disease in remission, but unfortunately, it had attacked my nose, the other sinuses, my lungs, and my kidneys. And so my kidneys were not able to come back, so I ended up with end-stage renal disease, and I started hemodialysis at that time. And did that for about three years, then had a cadaveric kidney transplant, which went beautiful for about seven or eight years, and then the last two years were a little tough, and then in 95, went back um, on hemodialysis, then was doing peritoneal for 10 years, and then have been back on hemo since 2004. So I've roughly been back on dialysis for about 21 years, and during that whole time, I was trying to get transplanted. I was highly sensitized. I've been on the list since 92, so, you know, um, but through this entire journey, I was able to go to school and graduate um, from college and get married and have a wonderful family and actually have a really good career, and whether I was dialyzing with PD or whether I was dialyzing um, with in-center hemo, where I was able to do my dialysis early in the morning, like around 5.15, get off at 8.15 and then go to my, my office and my job for work. Um, I was able to lead a really wonderful life, um, very valuable, very meaningful, and dialysis has its challenges, as we all know, um, or end-stage renal disease, just in the sense that you need to have access, you need to have that fixed every now and then, you need to figure out if you can do PD any longer. You know, we have these little obstacles that I call them kind of like, you know, the time trials of, <laughs> yeah. of, of being on dialysis. You never know what's going to be pop up to you, but you just handle them as they come, and as we all have done, and... Laura, you've been the leader, is that we've also, um, because of, of, of having this type of diagnosis, 
It also gave us a direction in our lives because we knew we wanted to help improve the quality of other um, patients and people who are living with chronic kidney disease. And so it kind of gave us a mission in a way in which we could take each day and make it valuable to say, how can we help? How can we make things better? How can we lend our voices to policy, to people um, in Congress, to our physicians, clinicians, et cetera? And so that's kind of what um, I've been doing um, for the majority of my life on the side, part yes. of my career. Yeah, you know. Celeste, you've been such an incredible advocate and mentor and just your whole positive attitude about life and, you know, overcoming little obstacles. I need to have an access revision. And you also deal with a serious autoimmune illness. And, you know, I guess my question is, do you think it's the kidney disease or the combination of the autoimmune that's making you choose hospice? And maybe you can explain what that means for people listening. What's really happening is this, Lori. So for 35 years, I've been dealing with all the different things that can happen with being on dialysis. Um, my autoimmune disease also required me to take um, a low dose of prednisone for 35 years. And it wasn't high dose. I was always below 10 milligrams. But I, I was taking a low dose of that just to keep it in remission. And as you know, one of the challenges with dialysis is your, your calcium and your phosphorus, right? And the idea of keeping your phosphorus low and not having your calcium high. So the combination of those things, plus um, unfortunately in 2006, I had gotten an MRI with um, gadolinium contrast, which um, hopefully everybody out there hearing this <laughs> knows that you, as a dialysis patient, cannot get gadolinium. Right. Um, but at the time, um, they didn't know that, and I did, and I got a man-made autoimmune disease called nephrogenic systemic fibrosing, or NSF. And so that is on top of these other three things I just mentioned. So, um, and that causes this really strong fibrotic reaction all the way up your legs into your lower abdomen and makes it very difficult to walk, et cetera. So the combination of those things um, have really led to the point where um, I have kind of arisen to a new journey. So where's that new journey leading you, Celeste? So so here's the new journey. You know, I've always been on this road um, of really going through all the different experiences and kind of dusting off your knees and getting back up, learning what you've learned and going on. But I knew that last November I had taken a fall, and it wasn't so much the fall or the ramification of what happened to a major fall, but it was what was already looming underneath um, in my health that I wasn't truly aware of, which was truly a catastrophic version of bone disease or, or severe osteoporosis, which really was making my bones not only breakable, but almost like um, where they could pulverize, if you will. They were so, they had so much damage to the bone that um, I broke, when I fell, I broke pretty much my entire torso, my sternum, my shoulder blade, my rotator cuff, oh. all my rib cage, my, you know, I had four compression fractures, you know, and these things were never going to heal. And we weren't sure at first what that meant, but as time has gone by, what it really means is that um, I'm not having something that is going to be treatable or repairable, I actually have now that it consistently um, gets worse every day, every week, every month. I'm constantly getting um, this type of um, movement of my bone and of my fractures 
and that they're just not repairable. Is it is the pain like horrible? Is it just it where- is the pain is really bad. You really see you really, you really start to understand what drawn and quartered means. Do you know? Because it's just um, you because your bones don't really have um, anywhere to go except move and kind of crush and make me really go forward. It's also my muscles and my tendons don't have a lot to hang on to. So they spasm, and it's just a constant, um, you know, every day it's kind of gravity and I are having this war where they're trying to constantly move me down and break me. I kind of look like there's that game whack-a-mole. We try to hit a mole over the head with a hammer, and that's kind of what it looks like. Like I've been, I went from being 5'4 to being 4'7 in, you know, a matter of probably a day or two. That's how bad that everything oh is. Oh, my God. Down. That is that visual. I mean, you just, it was that after the fall? Yes. Okay. It was, so it was after the fall. And there's nothing they can do to help reset the bones or anything like that? No. There's no that's, that's been the challenge. There's absolutely nothing they can do as far as, um, and there's no surgery. There's no braces that I can use. There's really nothing because most of the physicians and doctors that I'm working with don't really have um, any patients that they've ever dealt with like this. And so they don't really have any tools in their toolbox. So it's kind of when you were talking about, it's kind of being layered upon layer of various different types of um, uh, ailments that are keeping me from being functionally able, right? So I'm not able to um, be independent in my autonomy it's not even a question that just doesn't exist any longer. And I can't drive any longer. Um, I can't just run out and do errands. Um, I'm using a walker around the house, but I'm also now in a wheelchair. But the problem is this, this keeps going down, right? It, it's just going to keep moving. You know, I can now hear crackling in the back of my neck, which, you know, where I'm, I'm always afraid I'm going to turn my head and my neck's just going to snap. And um, that's how bad the bones are. So you just don't know when the next one's going to happen. So that's going on. At the same time, I have that nephrogenic systemic fibrosing, which means my legs are very, very fibrotic. And the only way I can explain to you what that feels like or even looks like is my legs are very hard as if I have a cast on both my legs or I've wrapped them in masking tape. And so I can't really walk with them because they're so hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have that. And then I go to dialysis like three days a week, right? Which right. is, you know, which is just part of the the wonderful gifts that we all have about keeping us alive. But here's the thing. Dialysis is really used to allow us to live our lives, right? It's, a, it's allowing us to, to live a functional, valued, meaningful life. And now that the journey I'm on, it's really transitioned where dialysis is giving me time. It's it's giving me the ability to have grace and courage to try to figure out what my next step is. And as we've gone through the last, especially the last three or four months, you know, my entire torso now is so um, bent over and I can't really eat or drink very well because of the, the hardness that's going on from the sternum down and the collapsing of my body that um, I really, I can't eat or drink very much. And so the whole way of living your life and being a part of this life is completely sacrificed and is where I'm really sitting in this one red chair every day and trying to get myself, you know, to move and go into another room. Um, but I can't really do anything on my own. And it's very difficult. So it's almost like, it's almost like 
um, when, when, um, oh, what is it? Since we're in the holiday season, Scrooge, right? And it has his, his coworker who is carrying this chain around, right? And, um, because of all the deeds that he did, I sometimes feel like every one of these ailments that keep coming and coming to me is adding one more chain, right? Mm-hmm. One more layer. And it's to get to the point, you have to start asking yourself, is, am I really, is the suffering and the struggle outweighing the value of my life? Well, and mentally, you are super strong. I mean, you're, you're an eloquent speaker. You're very articulate. And to just think your body's just failing you and your mind's not. I mean, that's... Uh, we we often hear about, I heard of a friend of mine whose wife, I mean, at a very young age, was diagnosed with uh, early set on, onset of Alzheimer's. And within like six months, she's totally healthy, but she can't remember anything. And, you know, it's it's like, you think that's like the worst thing in the world to happen, and it, it, it impacts the people around her, but she doesn't remember. You're at the opposite sen- end of the spectrum where you're, your body is failing you and your mind is is not. And I mean, the emotional impact of what your brain, I mean, I don't know about you, but it's very hard to turn my brain off. I mean, I have to do all kinds of things at night because I get these lists in my head and these things I want to do. And how are you handling the emotional part of this reality? Yeah, so that, that that's a really good point is that my brain it has been, right? I've been very, very, very much able to continue to try to articulate and, and have all of these advocacy goals and be a part nationally of things that are important to me. But the reality that has happened now for me, Laurie, is that I actually don't have those lists going through my brain any longer. Um, at night, um, I just try to get some sleep. And um, during the day, I fall asleep during the day. I was um, on this chair at this large committee, and um, we were doing a conference call Everybody else was in person. I was on the call, and I fell asleep on the call. And I didn't miss anything. I woke up and I was fine. But I thought, oh no, <laughs> I cannot be on this side of the call asleep. These people need somebody who's awake, right? He's not asleep on the other side of the call. And so my so my brain and and my body have started to make this decision for me. And it really made me to made me ask this question, Lori. It said, you know, why are we afraid to talk about death? Why are we afraid? to talk about um, when we come to the point in our lives that we say, do you know what? I have given everything that I have, and I feel like I've done what I came here to do. I feel like I've, I've lived the life that I'm supposed to do, and it's time for me now to take a step back and to, to, to sit and reflect on that and to talk to the people and my friends and my family and let them know how much I love them and how incredible they have made my novel of my book in this life and that it's time for me now to go and for them to go on and write their own chapters. But for me, with an absolutely peaceful heart and an absolutely clear mind, I've decided that I'm, I'm still on dialysis and I will be on dialysis um, while I'm on hospice um, because right now with the, the, the terminal bone disease, I've got a three-month life expectancy even on dialysis. So I'm staying on dialysis. So even with that, you know, um, but the, the challenge is the way that um, this disease is affecting my eating and my breathing and et cetera. Um, however, the reason why I chose dialysis, and I just want this, people to know this, 
is that if um, in the next two days, three days, four days, but if I end up getting a really bad um, chest cold, right, and my sternum is broken, and so that would be very bad, or I got pneumonia, or a couple different bones broke, or I ended up having one of my lungs collapse, then I'm going to basically not, and even now, I'm now no longer seeking medical intervention. So I would just say I want to go home. You know, I'm at hospice. It's in my home. You know, I've got my bed here, a room set up. I have nurses and everything. I just want to go home, and I'm going to stop dialysis now. What does hospice provide you right now? Does it provide you with pain management? Does it provide you with just a decision not to seek medical care? Um, does it provide you to more uh, support services for help? It, because at the moment you're staying on dialysis, but what what does the hospice doctor tell you? Sure. So the hospice the hospice nurse and the team. It's a social worker. Um, um, the nursing the the nurse for hospice, and then also my own nephrologist, right? And um, what they what they all do is they work together. And they're helping me to support myself right now because I do require oxygen. And um, I am in in pain, and I have pain that's being um, broken through, which means even though I have the pain regimen that we've been on, I'm starting to get, like, this this breakthrough pain um, that I'm taking these lidocaine patches for. And so they help just come every week to make sure that, you know, things are going well. How am I doing mentally? How am I doing spiritually? Um, Helping me understand about my bed you know, as far as um, you feel so energy-starved, right? You you don't have a lot of energy. Helping me do that. And so right now we're just doing everything with status quo, um, meaning we just make sure if my pain starts to break through and I don't feel well, is there something else we can try that will keep me comfortable? So regards to pain management, they have different options that are more easily available now that you made that decision to go on hospice as otherwise... I guess it's like an act of Congress nowadays to get pain medication. (laughs) And so does it make it a little bit easier to have pain management available to you? I think it makes it a little easier. But it also, um, what really helps, Lori, is it's a a team of people who know what it's like to actually um, come together and to decide to live the best life that you can each day and find joy in each day. So that means... Um, maybe a little bit more pain management, but also conversations with your family and getting them prepared for you making the decision to stop dialysis. I think that's the most beneficial role that hospice plays with someone is that people who are living on dialysis and then, as I said, keep getting all these chains added to what's going on in their lives. You know, a lot of people, when they talk about the possibility of stopping dialysis, they start saying, well, you know, they're, 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 they're using their own lives to reflect on other people's lives. Well, I'm fighting and it's really hard for me. You shouldn't do that. It's like, but what are you fighting with? Right? What, what is it that's really happening to you? Because every one of us is different. And, you know, there's people who have, you know, who are getting amputations from type 1, who have aneurysms, who've had three strokes, who have a heart attack. And it's not a competition. And that's one thing I really want to say, Lori, with our whole community. This is not a competition on who can stay on dialysis the longest and who can bear it the greatest. This is about all of us coming together and living the best lives that we can and honoring and and being so grateful for having dialysis to allow us to continue to live because if we had another organ, 
that was failing, we wouldn't have this opportunity, right? So, so right. we actually absolutely take dialysis for everything we can, but we don't take it as an, as an option to just keep the heart beating. Right. We, we dialyze to live, not live to dialyze. Exactly. And right. it's, it's, you know, it's interesting that you say uh, about, um, you know, who's on dialysis the longest and, and, you know, the different type of um, messaging sometimes that's out there. And I have to tell you that I do think people who've been around the kidney community a long time just deserve, and, and I'm even going to give myself this this suggestion is we deserve a little credit. It's tough. It's tough to be an advocate when you deal with a lot of health issues. And oftentimes I've been at different places like, oh, you know, just run up the stairs, the meetings up the stairs or, and they they forget that the, the drugs they give us take our physical ability away over time. And when I competed in the transplant games many, many years ago, that message seemed to be forgotten because we still have an illness. We still have an illness. And we have to come to terms with what that means. We're not restored. We're not cured. And my doctor tells me this because I've had some problems with my ankle and arthritis. And he's like, Laura, you're getting older too. You can't blame everything on kidney disease. And I'm 50 years old, but my body's really like it's 70 or 80 because I've been living with this illness for so long. So um, our age on paper is much different than what our age of our body is based on our illness. Yeah, because remember from, well, I want to say, remember Indiana Jones, my favorite line in that movie is, it's not the years, it's the mileage. (laughs) It's the mileage. This is so true. We get, what, a couple hundred miles uh, for everybody's 10. (laughs) <laughs> That's right. We got a lot of miles on these cars. And so what when I, I really want us to start and, and, and I'm hoping, Lori, that, that you keep, keep this conversation going because, you know, hospice and, and really palliative care and, and chronic kidney disease are really important. We do not have these conversations that they're just now starting to happen. And CMS and Center for Medicare Services is just now starting to reimburse nephrologists and nephrologists are starting to get themselves trained to have these conversations from the moment that we are diagnosed with chronic kidney disease. And what the, the, the palliative conversation is nothing more than saying, I want to make sure that we have conversations about the quality of life and what that means to me. What does it mean when I have symptoms outside of what might, what might be causing my chronic kidney disease or the fact that I'm, I'm transitioning to end-stage renal disease and what is my pain? right? Because there's a lot of symptoms that, that patients have that go untreated because nobody has that conversation any longer, right. right? It's kind of like, okay, kidney failure, dialysis, boom, we got you on there. You don't talk about symptoms anymore. You talk about quality of life, but only as it relates to the, the um, surveys that we fill out every year. Well, it's really not quality of life. It's quality. Dialysis is quality of treatment. You know, yeah. the, the, the only thing the dialysis facility can impact is the quality of our treatment. And then if they get the treatment right, we have to go out and improve our quality of life. <laughs> I mean, you Absolutely. know, at some point, patients have to take a responsibility for what kind of job they have if they go to school or, you know, how they... I mean, you're amazing that you have accomplished such a high level of education and success and you were on dialysis the whole entire time. That's just amazing. You didn't let anything stop you. Well, I think it's just as you said earlier in our conversation, you had said, 
you know, it's really about dialysis is really allowing us to live, right? Mm-hmm. I don't want to live, you know, just to do dialysis. And I think what people tend to do is they tend to focus on, um, you know, because th- th- this is a really difficult life. We all know that. We know it's hard to have to do um, a dialysis treatment for the rest of our lives unless we get a transplant, um, which is also fantastic. Uh, transplantation is great. Um, but it's all around the same game, right? There's still those of us who, who, who weren't able to get transplanted for one reason or another. Um, and so, you know, you want to be able to continue to live um, what they call self-efficacy, right? I want to be able to still manage my life and be active. When I say active, meaning engaged in my life with my doctors so that I can live this life, right. you know, because sometimes you can get sad. Sometimes you can be frustrated. You know, sometimes you can feel like you're swimming against the tide, especially because we have access issues. You have all these different issues. But the one thing we always want to try to figure out during those time periods is am I still grateful for being able to do something tomorrow? Do I have some things that are really important to me? Do you have something to look forward to? It's, you know, I I think that's the best barometer for um people being depressed too um well what what do you have to look forward to nothing <laughs> and uh, you know it's at a certain point if you're not able to do the things you love or feel like doing the things you love you're either depressed or that you have to have a serious discussion with your your doctor uh, celeste how is your um how is your husband how's your family reacting to your your choice and any words of wisdom that you can you, you can provide to the listeners Sure. So this has been an ongoing conversation with my family this past year um, just because of the fact that um, it has been hard on all of us and they've seen me deteriorate and they've seen me begin to suffer. Um, and my husband and I actually ended up having a conversation at a Biscuitville because he said, I see you suffering every day and I don't want you to struggle and we need to have this conversation. And so with my mother, she's 20 years older than me and we're each other's best friends. And this has been a very hard discussion. But here's, here's what we ended up coming up with, is that I'm going to continue to do dialysis because I still had some things I wanted to finish, and I wanted to continue to have conversations with those that I loved, and I wanted to make sure that everyone I knew, um, that we had the discussion about death, right? We had this discussion about life, because none of us, as you mentioned, none of us get out of here alive. We're all going to have to face it at some point. I feel absolutely blessed that... I have um, the option to withdraw treatment. Or what I say is I'm not withdrawing treatment. I would actually be changing um, my, my, my goals of life and changing my life quality um, to doing more comfort care, which means I'm ready to, to move on beyond suffering every day and, um, and, and, and to be able to say I've done what I need to do. And that's what my mother and I had really long conversations because I know I, I would love you here doing anything that you could, even sitting in that red chair all day. But she said, but I'm not here all the time, and I don't see you. And, of course, I don't want you sitting in that red chair. And I don't want you not being able to fly and do the work you want to do and not being able to drive and not being able to move by yourself to do anything and to have your bones breaking spontaneously every time you move. And your that appetite. That is not a life. Your appetite. Yeah, appetite. <laughs> I mean, it's like, don't you want a donut? <laughs> yeah, not only a donut, but <laughs> you want to drink like a Perrier or I love carbonated milk, <laughs> you know, like 
like Sprite or Seven Up ginger ale, and I can't drink them, you know, and I can barely drink water. And so that's really difficult. And those are things that don't allow you to be, that give you enjoyment. But what the most important thing is to be able to have these conversations together and to say, um, I really am, you know, the, the patient, to say to their family, I am really peaceful about ready to change my course of treatment because I'm really tired. I don't know if you know how tired I am, right. but I'm really tired and, and I love you all so much that I know you don't want to see me suffering and I know you don't want me to suffer. So let's try to do this. Let's spend our days trying to love one another because you can, you know, when you transition to hospice and then the biggest challenge, and I will tell you this, Lori, is a lot of hospice will not let you access your dialysis, your end-stage renal disease benefits if you do hospice. They make you stop dialysis, um, which is wrong. It's absolutely wrong. Everybody should have the option to go on hospice for at least like, you know, six to eight weeks, get their acts together, figure out what's important to them and their family, decide, you know, what their end-of-life things are going to look like because most patients, depending on whether you have kidney, um, whether you go PP or not, um, there's, you know, it's a different amount of time. For me, it's about probably 10 to 12 days um, That once I stopped dialysis. And so, you know, what people want is be able to get themselves in order, make sure they're at peace, make sure they their family feels good about this decision, and then they can stop accessing their end-stage renal disease benefits as far as dialysis. There's... Um, but I think what it's truly about is just having these conversations of not feeling like you have to continue to do something that is causing you so much suffering and is causing you so much pain and you're not living a life that is worth living because a lot of people don't realize that there is a lot of, a lot of things that are worse than death and losing your dignity, losing your identity, being alone, being in pain, not being able to eat, not being able to exist in any way that's meaningful. It's time to, at that point, it's time to say, I've lived my life, I've had value, I'm ready to go. Wow, Celeste, you're a poet. (laughs) I'm going to add that to your list of things that you're able to do. That was just so beautifully put and it's just so moving. I mean, I, I'm kind of like speechless, and and you know that's that's hard for me to say that. That's not my <laughs> in my character. <laughs> well, in closing, we're all about choice, and you know we've all always been. You know, patients need their choices, all of their options. Do you feel comfort that you're able to make your own choice in the end of life decision? Yes, I feel. I feel absolutely. The words that always come to my mind, and I never want to overuse them, but I feel absolutely grateful, and I feel at peace, and I have a very strong spiritual um, relationship, and I have this guardian angel that I've spoken with my whole life, and my guardian angel is with me and says we're on the right track, and this is time. Um, let's also let those around us know that that life is, you know, with your energy which is your soul and your spirit. They never die. They're just transformed. And so I'm fully prepared that my heaven is the cosmos, is the beautiful universe, and I believe that's where all this energy goes. And, um, you know, one thing I would like to take the opportunity, though, Lori, because this is what I've been doing, this is part of my mission, is I want to let you know, Lori Hartwell, 
what you've meant to me in my life and how you have made such a huge difference in thousands of other people's lives. But I'm going to be selfish and I'm going to talk only about me and that you have been someone that has guided me, that has shown what a proven young woman leader can be and try to um, bring the respect and elevate the status of those who've had this hard-learned experience of being a patient and having that very well-respected and having them a stakeholder that's valued by physicians and those who do research and those who do biomedical. And if it hadn't been for you, many of us would never gotten into this work to try to truly make a difference. So I just want you to know that I care for you so much. Your, your jewelry business is one of my favorite things because I give, you know, I always buy a lot of bracelets for, for holiday presents because they have names on them. They're beautiful. And to me, they're very touching to the people who receive them because I try to match up their personality with the person that you donated or you kind of made that, that bracelet after. So um, I just want you to know that you're a very, very special person and we're so very fortunate for you to have started RSN, but also to be here as yourself and your spirit and your energy. And I will try to do my best on the other side to mm-hmm. continue, continue to provide energy and support in any way I can. <laughs> well, I I don't normally cry, but I think um, it's, it, you know, you're so precious to the community and we hate to lose you. We really do. The community is going to, going to suffer a big loss and I hope this this interview will share some of your perspective knowledge humor and just your spirit of life and I I I really don't know how to close this interview I I don't want to I don't want to stop talking to you well can I say one thing can I just say that I want all of you you know on on YouTube or you you know as you said it's it's the the, the years, not the mile, I mean, it's the mile, it's not the years, but that there's so big, because of you, you've created so many young advocates and so many people that I feel confident to hand this over to, to say, now it's up to you all, and I challenge you to continue our fight, which is to make the lives of people with kidney patients so much better and with a higher quality um, than we've had in the past, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's what you've that's what you've wanted. It is, and it's it's sharing each other's stories. I mean, I've really about people who have kidney disease sharing their point of wisdom. That has been my calling from day one. Is how do we take the wisdom that Celeste has, or any of our other guests on Kidney Talk or on Live and Give, and how do we share our wisdom? Because oftentimes I feel people think our kidneys failed, our brain must have failed at the same time. And I find such great wisdom in my peer group, and I want to just share that. I want the world to understand how much knowledge we have and how we can share that to help the healthcare professionals and our peers, because this interview is going to help many, I'm sure, come to grips with a difficult decision and know that they had all the knowledge available to them to be able to make the right choice. And as we all know, we don't get out of life alive. So thank you so much, Celeste, for sharing your incredible story. 
I know that people can Google your name and find all kinds of information and articles that you've written, and your legacy will live on. Well, thank you so much, Lori, for, for asking me to have this conversation. And to all the listeners, I wish you the very best in the holidays and, and to also just wishing everyone peace in the journey that we're on because it's all our unique journeys. Thanks for listening to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network. Please make sure to find us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter at rsnhope.org. Kidney Talk is intended for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from your physician. Always seek the advice of your own health care provider regarding your medical condition.